Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director of Global Business Development at QIC. And this week, QIC was really honoured to host eight of the nation's most respected CIOs from the superannuation industry for a virtual roundtable. This roundtable was held to shape the national debate surrounding the management of superannuation portfolios during this COVID-19 crisis. But before we, we get into what was discussed, it's important to understand who was speaking in the room. In alphabetical order, we had Jonathan Armitage, the CIO from MLC Super, Mark Delaney, well-known to everyone from Australian Super, Damien Graham from First State Super, Alison Hill from QIC's State Investments Team, Graham Miller, the CIO at Telstra Super, Ian Patrick from Sun Super, Troy Reek from LGIA Super, and last but certainly not least, Charles Woodhouse from QSuper. To put all those names in another way, these eight leaders manage over $600 billion in assets under management for more than six and a half million members. They've certainly got a lot riding on their shoulders, particularly at the moment, given COVID-19 is reshaping our economy and our financial markets. So to understand why they chose to participate on this platform, I'd like to introduce our Executive Director of Clients, Solutions and Capital, Brian Delaney. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Craig. Mate, before we get into the roundtable discussion, I know this event was something you had enormous energy for. Can you perhaps share with our audience the background to this by sharing your time in the industry, where you started, and any highlights you'd like to pass on to the audience? Thanks, Craig. So firstly, I'm no relation to Mark Delaney from Australian Super, although um, because I'm a bit older than him and we've been to many conferences. We've sometimes got mistaken for rooms, but uh, I just want to be that, uh, make that clear up front. <laughs> so Craig, I've, uh, I've been in the industry uh, now for uh, nearly approaching sort of 35 years. Um, that means I'm a bit old, um, but it's been really across since the birth of, you know, what I'd call superannuation in the modern era, 1983 onwards is how, how long I've been involved. Um, so I've been able to get a pretty broad perspective of this industry as it's grown um, and it's grown incredible. And, you know, a number of the CIOs that we've had on this uh, round table this week have people that I've known for quite a long time and formed pretty good relationships with. So that's really just who I am, my background. The reason I was passionate to try and bring this group together is, you know, I think that the debate uh, around the impact of COVID-19 and, and how the impacts have been felt across the financial sector needed a pretty balanced view. And it needed a balanced view because ultimately we all sit here as fiduciaries for the members, that is the public, that invest through their super fund. And I've started to observe that via the press and via other mediums, that the debate was starting to get a bit short term. Frankly, uh, superannuation is a long-term invested. Most people would know you can't touch it until you're 60. So for my 25-year-old daughter, she's got 35 more years. And why is she? Why should she be overly concerned around some short-term problem when she's got 35 years to go? And I think you know, a number of people from our CIO fraternity called that out but I think that was important to get that balance. I think lastly, 
you know, we're an investor ourselves. QIC is a fiduciary for a, a large membership based from the Queensland government. And we wanted to make sure that the debate was also balanced on their behalf and so that they weren't overreacting or panicking or making unnecessary decisions around something that, yes, whilst it's when you're in the middle of it, it seems very impactful, but these events have happened many times over my lifetime. And my advice has always been to not jump too quickly when you see the first signs of something not working, but merely give it some considered thought around what you do next. Thanks, Brian. That's really helpful, that overview, but also it gives our audience a real understanding as to why that particular group was formed and what you're looking to achieve. Um, I thought we could move into the first topic that the CIO has tackled and provide that context around how they're individually managing the financial impacts that you mentioned around COVID-19. Before we get into the questions, Brian, I just want to quickly play a snippet of exactly what their day-to-day operating environment is like at the moment. From what will that we will inevitably, I think, have a, a short recession um, also, and quite a sharp one. Um, what we do hope um, that it is a V-shape, perhaps maybe not, maybe it's a U-shape. Um, we're using all sorts of letters of the alphabet these days to describe what might happen to the economic environment, but I think we will certainly experience a recession. And there's always different triggers for recessions. Uh, this is a different trigger to other ones, but there's been one every decade. So I don't think it's that unusual event when you strip it down to its basics. Mm -hmm. And there's been a bear market in US stocks every decade since 1950. So these aren't unusual events. The trigger's unusual, but Mm -hmm. having a recession and a bear market in stocks is part and parcel of what we all live with. And for people who've got money in superannuation, they'll have it in either through five or six bear markets over their lifespan. Mm -hmm. So to go into panic mode every time one of these happens is a ridiculous idea. So you're just listening there to Alison Hill from QIC and, of course, Mark Delaney from Australian Super. Brian, um, it'd be great to get some of your remarks here and particularly around how does this reflect what you've been hearing out in the market? Well, firstly, Craig, you know, I think I said on the day, if you knew and took away nothing else from these round tables, it would be that the calmness and the experience of the CIOs that are managing large pots of money for the members should give those members some comfort that some of them have been through this many times before. Mark summarized it beautifully when he said, we've had a bear market in stocks over the, for five or six years since 1950. So that's about every 10 years. The catalysts are different. This happens to be a health sparked one, but the impact is the same. So I think it should be comforting that these CIOs due to their experience and tenure have seen versions of this before. They're not exactly the same as Mark said, but the triggers are different. So I think that's the first thing that we take out. I think the other thing is, Craig, that you know a lot of the commentary has been around the short-term impacts and what that's going to do. Clearly, we have to take that into consideration. But as I said in my introduction, the investment that we're talking about in superannuation is by definition locked in and long-term. Therefore, people like my 25-year-old daughter can ride out these ups and downs because what they want is the long-term trend to be up. And clearly, I think that's the thing that for me, I've taken out the most. And in some respects, what I've heard from my friends as they've talked to me around 
how they're thinking about this and the fact that the education about super being a long term has really started to sink in. Yeah, I really echo that, Brian. I, I felt that uh, we had three CEOs respond to that question. And whilst we only played the snippets for two, all three were really calm in the way they approached it and really showed for me there's not an emotive approach to these um, uh, portfolio construction and, and the current environment. There's a real strategy behind it, which sort of shone through with the way they answered the questions. Um, I thought we could move on now to the role of liquid assets on the round table. And our CEOs were asked that given liquid assets have been an important component of a diversified investment portfolio, had they however become overexposed themselves? Again, let's hear what they had to say first before we get into the questions. But I don't think the super system's got too many illiquid assets. I think that's a furphy. Most of them would have two thirds of their, of their portfolio in liquid assets, and most of the money won't be accessible for a long time. So the idea they've got too much, I think is wrong, and it's misplaced. You know, the nature of investing is always such that we choose to actually seek risk and we choose to get rewarded for taking that risk. Um, and so the first point to make is that it's always been the case that um, funds have understood the uh, nature of illiquidity risk and those funds that have managed it well have blended um, illiquidity risk with a myriad of other risks in their portfolios to make sure that overall what they're getting is an attractive return stream for the risk that they actively choose to take. In, in this sort of discussion, and it's an important one to have, people don't lose sight of the role that those assets have, that they give uh, members of super funds exposure to perhaps different parts of the economy that don't necessarily come through listed markets. And, and in some ways, I'd argue that actually as the number of securities in listed markets diminishes, and that's been a phenomenon that's been going on for the last sort of 10 to 15 years, so all three CEOs there provided some really differentiated responses as to the unique role and exposure that real assets bring to their superannuation funds. Brian, if this is so clear cut, why is the debate currently happening that is being played out across both our press and parliament currently? It's a really good question, Craig. And frankly, I think the biggest reason why this debate is happening is the government decided that they would open up the superannuation system and allow members to access $10,000 this tax year and $10,000 the next tax year. And whilst I've spoken to a lot of people about this, I don't think any of that type of decision was on anyone's scenario planning about how the government could respond. So I think the press and the public domain being around trying to, if you like, sometimes create the story, I think they've started to look at some of the funds that have performed well in the past, the amount of illiquid and real assets they've had, and tried to draw in the conclusion that these funds have somehow been doing something wrong and they've got too much in one thing and therefore they're going to be under pressure when some of these um, opportunities for members to take money out starts to build momentum. My personal view is, you know, that, that's why it's been so heavily debated, primarily in the press. However, I want to go back to the central tenet that I've been referring to about superannuation. It is a long-term investment that for most people, they can't access until they're 60 years old. And it has been proven time and time again that illiquid assets provide diversification. And what I mean by that is accessing investment opportunities 
that aren't available in the listed or the stock markets or in the fixed income market. And there are many of those. The innovation and the early stage companies in the technology and healthcare sector that come through in private equity. The fantastic long-term assets that you can buy via the infrastructure sector, such as toll roads and ports and electricity um, providers. So a lot of the reason that these are liquid assets are so popular is because you can't buy them any other way. They are in great sectors of the economy where they generate a really good return. But I think the last and most definitive reason why is most people when they retire, and I'm much closer to that than you, Craig, want a level of income in retirement. And history shows us that these assets deliver really attractive yields, which means higher levels of income than listed markets with less volatility over a normalized time frame. And so therefore, they play very well to the members who then go into retirement and want to draw on that income stream. So I think that's the part for me that ties it all together, that need for the member as they transition through their working life. Maybe just to stay there for a second, one of the CIOs mentioned at the round table, a really uh, compelling comment I thought, which was around, it doesn't matter how liquid the investment is, if he's selling a liquid investment or a liquid illiquid investment after a significant fall, it's still not a good deal for the super fund. So it's just wondering to pick up on that comment around education, Brian, do you think there's a real need now for more public education around superannuation, the role it plays, so that this debate becomes more balanced? Craig, that question's being debated at conferences I've been at for, uh, I want to say, 10 to 15 years. Of course, education is needed, you know. I keep referring to my 25-year-old daughter. I've also got a 22-year-old daughter. Nowhere in the curriculum of any system that's currently run by our, by our schools is education around financial management and superannuation. Yet every one of those people that leave school will be in a superannuation fund where in this country, they have to make choices. They've got active choices around which fund and which investment style. So yes, I'm passionate that education needs to be a foundation. Having said that, I think we sometimes underestimate the public's ability to grasp things. And I think, you know, superannuation, now that it's got that momentum, and of course, the increased awareness, I think that education is picking up, but there's certainly always more to be done, mate. That is definitely something that should be continued to be because only with that education can people make better informed decisions. We know by the data that the CIOs talked about that there was lots of switches going on, switching out of equities, locking in a 35% loss to lock into cash. Well, as you know, Craig, just picking our domestic market here, if people would have done that at the you know 4,900 ASX level, They've missed the rebound currently from 4,900 to 5,500 roughly today, which is, you know, a significant increase, around 20%. Now, it may not stay there, but that's my point. You don't know, as a member, how these things can swing. So making knee-jerk reactions because panic, lack of detailed knowledge, lack of education really can sometimes force the wrong decision. So it's a long way of answering, but I think the education is fundamental. 
Perhaps just picking up on that comment around informed decision making, this probably brings us to the third topic that was raised around the round table, and that was around portfolio construction, investment strategy and risk management. Certainly a large one to tackle in a very short time frame. Brian, our CIOs were asked what changes super funds were making to their investment strategy and the approach to portfolio construction, not only response to COVID-19, but how they might look at it through the period as well. Here is their response. We don't think that portfolio construction, investment strategy or risk management actually changes because of COVID-19. I think those things are always going to be timeless and very important. Risk management in particular is the one thing that you have to do really well to make sure you survive short-term events like COVID-19. And I will call it a short-term event in the context of 30 to 50 year investment strategies. That's true. (laughs) That your investment strategy can have the time it needs to actually work. We talk to members about the importance of a long-term time frame and thinking about their investments, and we try and apply the same thing in the investment process ourselves. The speed with which this um, market downturn took hold, and in fact the economic contraction took hold, means that investment strategy and portfolio construction weren't really in a position to respond to that speed. I think we have to recognise that. The second thing we have to recognise is that As has been pointed out, we're in the business of taking risk to generate return over a medium to a long-term view on behalf of our members. In the absence of clear information as to how this will play out, we've all remarked on the uncertainties. How one adjusts meaningfully one's medium to longer-term view that would cause a meaningful shift in portfolio construction or investment strategy is beyond me. That's not to say we haven't been adjusting as we've gone through. So you've just heard there from Troy Reek of LJA and Ian Patrick from Sunsuper. Brian, a lot of comments there around time. You know, um, Troy talked about the speed of this, but also in the context of a long-term superannuation system objective. Um, I suppose the discussion that's happening right now is around illiquid assets, uh, but it's also raising questions around their valuations. In all this uncertainty, Brian, can you take us through how QIC has dealt with what is a very real issue here? Certainly, Craig. And um, our approach at QIC, remembering that we're both a fiduciary for our government clients, but also we are an input into all of the funds that were on this round table, is that we've got a risk and valuations committee and you know we were assessing what our currency policy current policies were and how they dealt with what was going on in the underlying teams and what i mean by that is the infrastructure team the private equity team and the property team those policies dictate that we use independent valuations however knowing that this and ian referred this the speed of the changes the impacts we quickly moved to a valuation approach that started to gain information and therefore changes of uh, valuation numbers so that we could get the latest information to our clients so that they could have as accurate valuations as possible. Now, some of these, you know, some of these assets that are long-term by nature, it's quite difficult to try and judge on the impact, but we felt it was very necessary in these certain strange times that we did all we could to help inform each of our clients on what was trying to be the most accurate understanding of where their values move. 
Thanks, Brian. Uh, I thought I'd give the final say to Telstra Super's Graham Miller, who raised the really good point that the implicit uh, in these concerns swirling around valuations of illiquid assets is that listed markets have had their valuations right in the first place. And I think there's a really interesting discussion and, to be, and debate to be had around that because, um, you know, actually listed markets don't always get things right. And I think what we've just, you know, we've just seen a market plunge by 38% and then rise by 27%. Um, and to sort of put that up as a poster child of, you know, this is sort of cogent, rational valuation of future cash flow streams, I think is, you know, is, is a notion that, that in fact can be challenged as well. Some really great words from Graham there. And this brings us to the final theme the CIOs discussed, which is the superannuation system's role in the economic recovery. Um, for me, there was a lot of passion uh, and energy in the room from our CIOs who really believe in the purpose of what they're doing day in, day out. There's no doubt that they have their members' interest in, in mind at all, at all points. And Ian Patrick really hired this well. However, Brian, it'd be really good to understand from you your view on how robust our superannuation system is for the current climate we're in and how it's going to bring us out into the economic recovery. Well, Craig, I think I've admitted that I'm a bit of an old person. So I've been in the system since it started in its current form since 83. So I've seen it go from, you know, a 3% contribution to nine and a half. And I've also had the benefit of living offshore recently. I've, I was living and running our US business. And I can say this from different countries that I visit, that most people look at the Australian system as one of the most robust and sophisticated in the world. It's very hard for people to understand how can we have the fourth biggest superannuation and pension system when we only have 23, 24 million people living. And that's, that's everyone, not every, all of those pay into superannuation. And the simple answer is that the system's been running since 1983 and that compound effect. So I've got a lot of confidence in our system because I know it stands up against nearly all systems around the world. I also know that due to the sophistication of the system, that the system has been able to attract and retain CIOs and other executives of the quality of the eight that we had on this round table. And that gives me a lot of confidence and comfort that the system that we've built so successfully will continue and serve the needs of those members. I'll keep the theme about my daughters, my daughters who are just entering it so that they're going to have the dignity in retirement we all deserve. And frankly, not having to rely on the public purse via the pension system as much as they would normally do without that in place. So I've got a lot of confidence in it. I've got a lot of confidence in the people running it. And I think, you know, the quality of the CIOs we had at this forum really highlighted that we're in really good hands. Well, Brian, let's compare that to some of the answers we heard from our CIOs at the roundtable. So Alison Hill, Troy Reek and Child Woodhouse had also been asked that question. And let's understand how they thought the rebuilding phase in a post-COVID-19 landscape would occur in Australia. And certainly, I think real assets are a key part of that. Um, we're often purchasing assets which are essential to the fabric of society, um, and, we, and we're contributing with strong governance and oversight to those assets and enabling them to be efficiently managed. So things they could be, you know, electricity distribution, we can look at digital and data infrastructure, um, we're all increasingly uh, very pleased that we've got, we've got those services available to us in this current environment. We're looking at hospitals, we're looking at waste and water services. 
So super has been a big contributor to the Australian economy for a long period of time, whether it's through listed shares, it's corporate debt, it's private lending, ownership of infrastructure, real estate, et cetera. Right? We've, we've always been here helping to make the economy work better. So if governments continue to provide the right sort of environment for investments, people like regulatory certainty, they like an advantageous tax system, they like a big opportunity set, there's no reason why super funds can't be an even bigger share of the economy over time here. That's going to be good for members and it'll be good for the economy as well. I would uh, absolutely concur. Uh, I think this uh, episode is a bit of a wake-up call in terms of the need to rebuild uh, economic and community resilience. Uh, and I think uh, financial institutions can play a role in that. And as Troy rightly pointed out, I think uh, we have played a role uh, similar to that uh, historically, but it's important now. And I think large, well-funded uh, organizations, um, you know, with access to liquidity and funds to invest can really act to take advantage of opportunities that will benefit members, but also the community. So you heard there that Troy was talking about how the super system can't do it alone, that it's part of an ecosystem that includes government and policy to help it achieve those outcomes for the Australian economy over time. Brian, it'd be good to understand your perspective after hearing from Troy, Alison and Charles just then. And I suppose also putting the context of the way that QIC can work with those clients in contributing to these vital contributions. Yeah, it's a really good point, Craig. So firstly, I think as simple as it seems, stimulating debate like this, I think is important. Being able to have constructive conversations around such big meaty topics, I think goes a long way. I think also something that QIC has done quite well has been, we've been an active and early investor in a lot of illiquid assets, a lot of those new and emerging sectors. You know, frankly, 15 years ago, infrastructure, even as recently as 10 years ago, wasn't something that people really understood. Uh, yet QIC has been investing in that sector for, you know, for over uh, 15 years now. So some of the lead thinking we've done in accessing those asset class, I think has helped the general superannuation community. And then lastly, as I keep referring, we are an investment manager, but we're also a fiduciary for a large pots of money on behalf of members, which is a fairly unique positioning. So we do a lot of modeling scenarios. We do a lot of work on trying to forecast outcomes that obviously all lead to a better system, more professionally run. And ultimately that lands itself that the members that go into retirement are much better off as a result of being part of this system than they would have been by themselves. It's an often used word, but people can have dignity in retirement to live the type of life they want to because the system that we've collectively built and contributed to has served that purpose. So that's what I think is really important to continue. It's the reason why this industry has been so good to me, but I think it's really important to continue that momentum. Thanks, Brian. Your years in our industry certainly shone through in your insightful commentary just now. Our roundtable brought together representatives from state sovereign funds, corporate super funds, wholesale and retail funds, and of course, industry super funds. It was really impressive hearing the strong and differentiated views each of these highly experienced CEOs brought to the debate. And as a member of our superannuation industry, 
I continue to be really impressed with those responsible for our national savings future. This of course led to the roundtable receiving great coverage in our national press. Whilst we played some of the highlights during today's podcast, I can assure you our CIOs brought to the conversation some further relevant commentary. And if you would like a copy of the investment report produced from the roundtable, please reach out to your local QIC relationship manager. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please watch out for our next podcast and have a great afternoon.